Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, September 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk with Representative Michael Guest. Then a look inside a clinic offering monoclonal antibody therapy for COVID-19. And an update on the state's labor shortage. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today, we're joined by U.S. Representative Michael Guest. He's served as congressman for Mississippi's 3rd District since 2019 and is the second-ranking Republican on the House Homeland Security Committee. Representative Guest talks infrastructure with Michael Guidry. We've been extremely blessed this year. Uh, Ida was really the first major storm that, that has caused extensive damage, but not only caused damage in Louisiana and some in Mississippi, but, but we've seen flooding as the storm has continued up in uh, New Jersey, uh, New York. Uh, you talked about the wildfires uh, out west, uh, and, and they have been very severe this year. Uh, and so I believe that if we get to the point that FEMA says that there needs to be additional uh, funding for FEMA for it to carry out its mission, uh, I think that that would be something that you would see on a bottom partisan basis. Uh, you generally, you're going to see uh, when, when when time of needs come uh, that Congress is going to be able to come together, and we have in the past, and I hope we will again, to make sure that, that FEMA is fully funded because, you know, uh, none, no one can predict where a disaster is going to occur, when a disaster is going to take place. And, and I think that is a crucial role of the federal government is working with our state officials, working with our local officials to provide that immediate relief. Uh, and we know 
know that it's going to cost a, a substantial amount of money to, to help our friends and our neighbors in South Louisiana, uh, in New Orleans, I mean, where you're talking about people who are ha- having to go maybe six to eight weeks uh, without electricity being restored. Uh, schools are going to be out for, for six to eight weeks as well. And and so the, the, they are going through what Mississippi experienced 16 years ago in Hurricane Katrina. And so I think it is important uh, that in times of natural disasters that all Americans come together and we rally around our neighbors. The CEO of Energy Louisiana said, uh, for parts of the state affected by the storm, quote, this will not be a repair, it will be a rebuild. Uh, When we consider this and, again, what happened to the power grid in Texas in the winter, uh, ongoing water issues in our capital city of Jackson and places like Flint, Michigan, how much should we expand the conversation of infrastructure beyond roads and bridges? And I say that considering you have been one of the biggest proponents of broadband being a part of that infrastructure conversation. Um, when we consider these things, how, how much should we expand what we, how we define infrastructure? You know, I, I think clearly our electric uh, delivery system sh- is a crucial piece of infrastructure. Uh, you know, as we've seen more storms, uh, and we will continue to see storms. I mean, throughout the history of this of this nation, we've we've seen storms come through. Uh, we know that Mississippi is also subject to tornadoes, particularly in the spring and in some cases the fall. You know, I think it's important that, that we we try to harden uh, those delivery systems. You know, whether and I know we can't bury every line under the the, the ground, but you know, as new electric lines are, are are being rolled out, you know, I think to me it it makes sense where feasible. Uh, to try to put those underground so you don't have to worry about uh, trees falling over on power lines and, and knocking, you know, those power lines out. I do think we need to make sure, particularly, you know, our, our large delivery lines, uh, that, that, that as we are having to, like you said, not only repair but rebuild those, that we rebuild those to to be able to stand up for storms such as Ida. And we know that, they not, that, that the storms of Ida and Katrina, they don't happen every day. Uh, they, they may only happen once a decade, but if we're going to go back and we're going to rebuild, let's rebuild bigger, let's rebuild stronger, and let's rebuild so that we can withstand the next storm. And if that takes federal dollars uh, to be infused and it takes a federal-private partnership to do that, I, I, I think those are the types of investments uh, that we need to be involved in. What about what, what role do alternative or non-traditional sources of energy play when we consider what you just said as far as making sure we have a secure, sound electrical grid? I, I, I would put those in, 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 in different conversations, you know. So when we talk about the grid, when we talk about the, the delivery system, you know, whether we're talking about uh, that energy being delivered uh, by some sort of coal-fired plant, uh, nuclear energy, which we know we have here in Port Gibson, uh, natural gas, uh, you know, electric, solar, um, um, uh, wind, you know. I mean, t- t- to me, the, the, the grid should be designed to deliver energy regardless of, of the source of, of where that energy is produced. Uh, and, and we do know, and we have seen, you know, the, the resurgence of solar uh, that, that many places, including places in Mississippi, are, are, are looking to see what we can do to supplement, you know, our, 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 our uh, the energy that's being produced, whether, again, be by nuclear, by gas, by coal, with things such as, which, what, what such as solar. Uh, that's still a developing technology. Um, it is getting better.
better. Uh, and it seems to be getting better every year. But I don't believe it's to the point to where we could depend upon solar to completely power everything. Uh, and uh, maybe one day we'll be there. Uh, and if we are there, uh, that's great. But there has continued to be investment, investment uh, some by the, 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 by the, the public sector, but much by the private sector. Uh, and, and I think that that's where we're going to see continued growth. Uh, we're going to see place, We're going to see folks like Energy uh, as they're looking at how they need to produce more energy. I think they're going to see more and more that they're going to be looking at to solar to help supplement the energy that they need. Publicly funded projects in the mid 20th century kind of created this boom for the American middle class. It was focused a lot on infrastructure and other public works. What does the road look like for the 21st century of that? 50 years ago, we worked very diligently to make sure that every home had the access to electricity uh, and the ability to have phones in their home. Now we can expand that to include broadband. Uh, I think Internet and the use of Internet now is so vitally important, uh, particularly high-speed Internet many years ago used to be a luxury. It, it was a way for people to be able to, say, watch Netflix on their home uh, versus uh, not, not having that ability. Now we see that the, the high-speed Internet is more of a necessity, uh, particularly with the onset of COVID. Uh, we know that people now shop from home, uh, people go to school from home, people work from home, people worship from home by watching live streams of, the, of their church services. Uh, people will, will see their doctors uh, from home uh, in telemedicine. Uh, and so if we're going to um, encourage uh, businesses and economic development, you know, one of the things that, that most businesses need today is, is they need to be able to have access to the high-speed Internet. And so while before we were building out, again, telephone lines, we were building out electric lines, you know, I think one of the roles of the federal government is we need to build out broadband uh, uh, to as many individuals as we possibly can. Now, there may be some people who are so remote uh, that, that, that it becomes uh, a, a huge financial disincentive, uh, but, 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 but to most of America, I, I think that, that that would help spur uh, the, the economy again here in Mississippi uh, and nationally, and, and some of the same things that we saw when we uh, introduced the interstate system, when we uh, introduced electricity and, and some of the programs that we have. I think rural broadband is that next step going forward, uh, and I think that there are huge economic potentials uh, for us to be able to see a significant return. Our conversation with Representative Michael Guest continues on tomorrow's show. Coming up, outpatient COVID treatment keeps Mississippians out of the hospitals. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Department of Health has just released its numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths. These represent yesterday 1,934 cases, 102 deaths. Hospitals in the state remain stretched for capacity, even as Mississippi's COVID-19 hospital admissions begin to decline. Medical experts say proactive outpatient COVID treatment continues to be a critical tool in preserving the integrity of the healthcare system. Debbie Runnels is a nurse and administrator at a primary care clinic called Medical Associates of Vicksburg. She speaks with Kobe Vance. When you have COVID-19, if you are at risk, 
or you've had post-exposure with risk, you can get what we call monoclonal antibodies. And these are antibodies that are like what your body would naturally produce if you had an infection. However, these are mass-produced for people for certain viruses. And right now we're reusing the Regen Cove, which is COV, to give patients that have it. We have given probably close to 300 and some doses here. And what we do is if you're a high-risk patient, say you are over the age of 65, that's high risk. You have hypertension, diabetes. You look like somebody that's going to have to be admitted to the hospital. We want to get you before you go into the hospital. That way we're cutting down on the capacities that a hospital has. You can be 12 years of age or older and 88 pounds or more if you have high risk. And, I mean, we have a lot of obese children in Mississippi, and so they are at high risk. The monoclonal antibodies are given two different ways, intravenously, and now they are authorized to be given subcutaneously, which takes four shots. Um, most people opt for that because they'd rather have that than an IV. I'm not sure why. One stick to me is better than four, but that's people's preference. It is very, very effective. We have only had two cases where a patient, after they've had the monoclonal antibodies, have to go into a hospital. And that's out of 300? Yeah, out of about 300 people, right. How has demand changed over the past few weeks? Have we seen COVID rise so much? This has extremely, yes. We were given two or three a day. Now we are given 20 to 30 a day, most days. They hear about it. You know, somebody says, hey, man, I had the... I had those monoclonal antibodies, and they really helped, and, and medical associates has given them. Y'all need to call them. So when they get COVID, then they call us, and we schedule them. We try to schedule them as soon as possible to get them within that 10 You know, we have to get them within that 10-day window. And y'all are doing that Monday through Friday? Well, we've also been doing it on Saturday. Gotcha. As far as resources, is there anything that your clinic needs to keep this going? Are y'all getting everything y'all need from the Department of Health? We are. They, in fact, the Department of Health, they have helped us tremendously. We set up an area, and they have sent us two paramedics that have been wonderful because it was very difficult because I'm in the only RN in the clinic. We have an IV nurse who is an RN, but she does just IVs in our little IV infusion center. So if we were doing IVs, then I was having to be back there, and it's difficult to run a a large practice like we have and do these monoclonal antibodies. So it was very nice when the health department came in and said, hey, we need to set up a clinic somewhere. Do y'all have a place? And we said, we sure do. We'll help. Let's do this. They supplied the medicine, of course. And they supplied, the, like I said, two paramedics. We supply everything. We supply all the other supplies. Is there anything else that stands out to you about this program that you've been seeing as you've been doing this work for the past few months? All I can tell somebody is if they're not vaccinated, they need to get vaccinated because they're the ones that we're seeing most of the time that are needing the monoclonal antibodies. Um, we have had a few that they have been vaccinated. Some have only had one shot. Some have had both their shots. And they had their shots like at the la beginning of, la you know, at the end of last year, the beginning of this year. But if you get COVID, at, you know, call your doctor. Call us. We can tell you whether you're eligible to get the monoclonal antibodies. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Mississippi's labor economy begins a slow recovery. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's workforce participation rate plunged in the early months of the pandemic. Over the past few months, it's slowly but steadily crept up. Corey Miller, the state economist, talks with Rob Lane. I would say our labor economy is improving. In the last three months, the state has added almost 15,000 jobs. It's increased 0.4% in May and June and 0.5% in, in July. That's an improvement over the first four months of the year where our job growth had kind of stalled out. We've also seen declines in both initial and unemployment claims. They're both still somewhat elevated compared to where they were um, as of February 2020, but they both reached post-recession lows in July. So the, the trends in the past few months have been good. What do you see as the primary factors that have made the unemployment rate in Mississippi slowly start to tick down, the workforce participation rate start to tick up? Our workforce participation rate had actually come all the way back to where it was prior to the pandemic um, in February. We were back to 56.1% in in February. As of July, we were at 55.9%, so it's been pretty steady uh, over that time frame. Of course, that is still a a relatively low rate of labor force participation compared to the rest of the country, but we have have come back to where we were uh, much more quickly than, um, than the U.S. as a whole. I would attribute that to uh, several factors. One, we just uh, we didn't take as big a hit in terms of job losses uh, in 2020 than the country as a whole and a lot of other states. Uh, I think that has to do with the, the mix of industries in, in Mississippi compared to the nation. We don't have as many, uh, as a rural state, we don't have as many um, workers in the service industries, even though those have been the industries that have taken the hit. Uh, we don't have uh, as many of our labor force employed in, in those uh, sectors that, that the nation does because of we tend to be a relatively rural state. We don't have a lot of large cities, so we don't have as much in the service sector. Also, I think the speed at which the state reopened uh, last year probably had some uh, impact on how quickly the jobs have, have been able to to rebound. So I would, I would kind of point those at, at as being some of the the major factors in our recovery so far. You implied there, I think I can infer, that generally over a long period of time, Mississippi's labor and participation rate tends to be lower than the national average. Why is that? That's right. Um, Usually on a monthly or an annual basis, our labor force participation rate is one of the lowest or next to lowest. West Virginia is usually kind of right there where we are. And that's for several reasons. I think it put it all under human capital. It means we have uh, lower rates of, of education, uh, skills and training in our in our labor force. We also have a lot of health-related issues that keep people out of the labor force. We have considerably higher rate of disability uh, in our population. Uh, we also have higher rates of chronic diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, obesity. Um, Those are also factors that keep our labor force participation rates down. From your perspective, what can 
either or both the public sector and the private sector in Mississippi do to incentivize people to get out working and facilitate stronger workforce participation? I would say, in just generally speaking, anything we could do to improve you know, our, our education rates, both in terms of, of high school uh, graduation rates as well as college education, that, I mean, that's, that's going to take a lot of time. I don't think we can significantly raise labor force participation rate in the state in a, in a short period. I think it's going to take a long-term strategy. And also related to that, um, anything to do with improving that can improve the, the health of the overall population. Um, Short-term, that would definitely include vaccinations for COVID-19. Anything that can uh, improve that situation might also improve our labor force. How do you feel about expanding Medicaid? Uh, I don't have a position on it. So far, most of the research has shown that it hasn't affected labor force participation in most states that have expanded Medicaid. Earlier this summer, Governor Reeves ended federal enhanced unemployment benefits early with the express intention of incentivizing people to return to work. How would you evaluate the effectiveness of that strategy? So far, we haven't seen any or we haven't seen much difference between states that I think about half the states that are receiving the uh, Emergency unemployment benefit terminated that in in in, in June or or there thereabouts. Um, the Wall Street Journal looked at that in the article last week, and they didn't find uh, much differences in the job growth. Although it is it is somewhat early, but so far like, we haven't seen uh, much differences in the job growth. Uh, we'll, we'll really be able to see what effect those emergency benefits had on unemployment for the nation as a whole once we have data in for this month. Corey Miller is the state economist. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.